Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we will be asking about blame and forgiveness with our guest, Miranda Fricker. This past week, Jews across the world celebrated Yom Kippur, our holiest day of the year. For 24 hours, we fast while reflecting on what we did wrong and where we fell short. We have to see ourselves as clearly as possible, but we also have to pay attention to the people around us. We ask questions, imagine responses, and advocate for others. Unfortunately for everyone everywhere, truly seeing other people is something human beings are really, really bad at. For Jews, there is no divine help with us. Yom Kippur forgives sins before God, but not against people. We must look one another in the eyes and apologize directly. Whatever our limitations, however difficult it might be, our reconciliation must be unmediated. It is people who we have harmed, so it is people whom we must face. God does not stand between us. We must feel remorse. What I find most powerful about this is that at the most sacred moment of the most sacred holiday, Judaism celebrates the secular, not the religious. It recognizes that people matter first, that their choices alone are the causes of their mistakes. Jews cannot look at God for human acceptance, nor can they defer to the unknowable as the cause of misdeeds. Forgiveness and blame are about human relationships. It's about the things we do, not what we feel or want. How should we atone? That is unclear. When should we be forgiven? That too is ambiguous. Blame and forgiveness are wrapped up in time, place, circumstance, and particularity. They require seeing things for how they are, not just how we want them to be. If we are not truthful and candid, we can never be held accountable for our actions. We cannot feel remorse, we cannot atone, we cannot be absolved. Any secular theory of forgiveness will have to invoke the same philosophical considerations that a religious theory does, but without the metaphysical shortcuts. It must have a standard of truth without invoking an all-powerful creator. It has to develop criteria for what it means to wrong someone, what constitutes harm, and what forgiveness means in the first place. Do we wipe the act from our memories and never consider it again? Or can we forgive while still being cautious and skeptical when we meet the wrongdoer? The secular theory also has to consider the nature and limits of human awareness without relying on an all-knowing judge who arbitrates. How do we know when someone is to blame? Can we determine their intentions or just the consequence of their acts? And is being told we are forgiven as persuasive as feeling it? After all, how many times has someone told us not to worry about something even when they seemed really, really mad? Should we believe their words or their body language? There are moral considerations as well. We have to ask about the purpose of blame and forgiveness and whether there are some acts that only society can excuse. There are political concerns too, such as whether forgiveness negates the need for punishment or if blame delegitimizes our leaders. These are all complicated judgments, but once we jettison the religious, they become all the more powerful. Christian doctrine seeks forgiveness as a consequence of grace. It describes blame as parceled out during the final judgment. But from the Jewish perspective and from the secular point of view, these concepts have no power. God's intervention and divine redemption have nothing to do with it. 
Today's guest is going to offer us a secular theory of blame and forgiveness that is rooted in moral and political life. She does not come from the Jewish tradition. That's all me. That's just what I've been thinking about this week. But she will certainly be aware that for most people, forgiveness feels inherently religious, and for many, it seems essentially Christian. It need not be either of these two things. The most common secular approach to forgiveness is the one justified by psychological health. We have all been told that holding on to grudges makes us bitter, and that absolving others is a prerequisite for our own well-being. But I have never found this approach to be particularly persuasive. It lets people off the hook too easily. Why should some people avoid blame just because it makes the victim of wrongdoing feel better to move on? All of this is to say that forgiveness and blame are complicated ideals that mix the religious, the secular, the historical, and the cultural. But just because these influences are hard to parse doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make sense of them all. Forgiveness and blame are necessary components of moral life. Dismissing them or calling them obsolete is to diminish who we are. Some may say that erring is human and forgiveness divine, but I think this is backwards. Error is a concept rooted in the absolute goodness of God. Forgiveness, on the other hand, is the most human thing we do. And now our guest. Miranda Fricker is Presidential Professor of Philosophy at CUNY Graduate Center and Honorary Professor at the University of Sheffield. She is the author and editor of numerous books on feminism, epistemology, and moral and political philosophy. She is most well known for her work on epistemic injustice, exposing the ways marginalized people's knowledge and experiences are ignored. Miranda, welcome to Why. Thank you, Jack, and thanks for that uh, very helpful introduction. If you'd like to comment on the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all as at Y Radio Show, one word, or email us at yradioshow.org. Uh, you can listen to all of our previous episodes for free and find information about our future shows at yradioshow.org. So, um, Miranda, especially in my monologue, I was using blame and forgiveness in the same sentence as if they are two sides of the same coin. As the, the philosopher in me wants to know, am I right? Are they really tied together so tightly, or are they distinct enough that they really have to be treated as separate subjects? Well, I tend to think of them as two sides of one same coin, which is um, the coin where we are responding to wrongdoing. So obviously, blaming and then forgiving are normally serial experiences. Um, somebody wrongs me, I might blame them, and then with any luck, I manage to forgive them a little bit further down the line. Perhaps they've apologized, or perhaps I want to forgive them even though they haven't apologized. And so in a way, thinking about blaming and forgiving together is to think about the person who's wronged and what their responses towards the wrongdoer might be through time. And so that's one sort of coin, but in another way, of course, it's really very much just half the story because there's at least one other agent involved in all this, namely the wrongdoer, who might apologize, who might not feel sorry at all, who might disagree about the interpretation of what they've done. Um, but for my particular project, I got interested in thinking about blaming and forgiving as two sides of the same coin because I wanted to focus on the rationality and the experience and also the functionality of these responses to a wrongdoer. Does, does blame and forgiveness require, I guess, what in legal circles would be called standing? As in, if I'm an observer 
and I don't have skin in the game, and I'm not wronged, I'm just seeing other people or even reading about history or things like that, can I still use these terms in the same way? Or do they have different meanings when I am the one who is either wronged or doing wrong? Yes, that's a great question. And a lot of people are very exercised about this business of standing, you know, who has the right to blame, who has the right to forgive. And people disagree quite a lot about it. I find myself, well, having views that probably are a bit controversial in a way. And let me just explain them. I mean, it depends a lot what one takes blaming to be, of course, whether you think the question of standing is a very big deal. I take blaming someone in its most minimal form to be uh, just a matter of judging them to be blameworthy for what they've done, judging them to be at fault, if you like, for what they've done. And that's something anyone might register about any agent in the world. And indeed, if we're going to understand what's going on ethically in the world around us, we better be able to register that this, that or the other agent, whether it's an individual, a government, a jury, a police force, is at fault for acting the way they act. And in that sense, um, given that rather minimal conception of blame, which I like and find natural, everyone has standing to blame because blaming a bad actor is just a way of registering the fact that they've committed a wrongdoing. And we might modify our blame if we think there are mitigating circumstances or excuses that apply, but that has nothing to do with standing. We all can register the fact that someone is at fault for what they've done, and in that sense, we all have standing to blame. But the people who would uh, hold back from saying we all have standing to blame are probably thinking about blame a bit differently from the way I do. They tend to be thinking about blaming as something different and special in relation to the judgment of blameworthiness. So they might say, well, look, we can all blame a bad actor in the sense of judging them to be blameworthy, but that's not blame proper. Blame proper is like being angry or being hostile or telling them they shouldn't have done what they've done and intervening in some way. Now, that's something I quite agree with. For me, I would distinguish blaming, which I think of as just the judgment of being at fault, from what I call communicative blame, which is to, as it were, intervene. One might communicate to the wrongdoer themselves that you find fault with them for how they've behaved, or you might uh, chat with a third party and say, wasn't that terrible what they did? I really can't believe they did it, and what were they thinking? And these are all ways in which we express our moral attitudes and try and make sense of each other's uh, agency. But it's that communication, that presuming one is entitled to intervene, if you like, communicatively, especially if one's talking to the wrong wrongdoer themselves. That's something I think the question of standing does apply to. But in my personal view, I don't think there's anything terribly special about blaming vis-a-vis -vis other kinds of, you know, it not being none of my business. So I think it's none of my business to uh, intervene if I know that... Um, a couple that I'm acquainted with are going to divorce and they haven't told any of their adult children yet and I think it's appalling that they haven't explained to the family what's going on. It's still none of my business to go in there and start telling people what's going on. It's just uh, I don't have standing to do that. It's none of my business. And so I think blaming is a bit like that. It falls under these other norms. There's there's so much in what you just said and I want to put a couple things aside like communicative blame uh for a minute because that's a little more technical and, and, and I want to spend a lot of time on it. But I'm curious about this this issue of standing because 
what you were talking about is 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 the emotional uh, element, which is you know blame for 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 folks who have a, a more robust conception than than you're suggesting. They have this emotional place. They have these deep-seated feelings, and we can, of course, understand why, why why people have these passions. Is there a knowledge element about it too, an epistemological element? And what I mean by that is, um, you, of course, are, are super familiar with uh, what gets called feminist standpoint theory. This idea that there are people because of where they find themselves in life, because where they find themselves in the social order, have certain awarenesses and certain understandings that give their perspective a certain kind of priority, that we should privilege them in the sense that we should attend to them first. This is a vast oversimplification. Is Does this apply to blame, too? Are there people who have the moral authority to blame in a way that other people don't? Well, again, for me, I think that can be the case if we're talking about blame that is being communicated or acting on in some way. Um, so I might well feel that it's not my place to express or communicate that some party is blameworthy for what they've done if I ought to be respecting the possibility that I probably only know half the story or like one side of the story. And that's a general normal kind of rule of thumb about if you like, epistemic humility, not presuming you know everything, which I think does govern our kind of common sense feeling about who has standing to uh, communicate about these things. But again, I wouldn't say that it undermines a person standing to register a judgment of blame. I think it only affects public acts of blame, like communication of blame. So one of the things that we're dealing with, and I guess one of the reasons why I'm sort of dancing around these things with reluctance, is that for lots of people, blame is a negative, right? For lots of people, uh, blame is something you shouldn't necessarily do. You should do with tremendous caution. You uh, blame is harmful and eats away at the soul and all of this sort of stuff. Do you think that blame is inherently negative or are there positive aspects of it as well? I think that blame can take incredibly negative and toxic forms, but I also think that it can take very everyday, light, non-toxic forms. And I think sometimes when people quite rightly express concern about you know, blame culture and emphasize how destructive um, blaming can be, they can sometimes forget that we find fault with each other all the time in small ways. You know, my bad, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. This is an, an acknowledgement of my blameworthiness for doing something. But I don't think anyone suggests those sorts of occasions where you just feel like saying, oops, sorry, quick apology, that there's anything toxic about that. And these things can apply to genuinely moral situations like, you know, you're a bit economical with the truth to a friend because it's more convenient not to tell them the whole thing. And they find out and you're really sorry, but they kind of understand why. And it it's a quick exchange of finding fault, apology, and then letting it go, which is what I would call blame. But of course, habits of blame where we really think of blame as... Um, a kind of condemnation of the soul or a condemnation of your whole character. And if that's the style and the tenor that it comes out with as it's expressed, then of course that is very toxic. And I think one of the things I hope to do in writing about blame is to say, look, 
let's have this really minimal idea of what it is to find someone blameworthy for something. It might be oneself or it might be another. We find fault with them for what they've done. Then it's an open question how we, whether we express it at all, how we express it, whether we do so in a very kind of high-handed condemnatory tone, whether we do so in a way that makes explicit we think it's just a, a kind of slip-up on their part or whether we express it in a way that makes it seem like we think that they're really kind of damaged character deep down. These are all questions of style and they are cultural and personal choices as to how we frame blame and how we express it. And that's why I like to think so hard about the social and moral functionality of blame. Now, what do we want to achieve by blaming each other for things? If it just makes us all feel terrible about ourselves, then it's not really doing anything morally or socially useful. But if it can aim at educating each other so that if you're wronged and you if I wrong you and you blame me in a way that is actually conducive to my beginning to realise what it was like for you to be on the receiving end of that little lie I told you or whatever it might be, then you're kind of educating me and you're bringing me to a better moral understanding of my own actions and not just making me feel defensive or feel terrible about myself for the hell of it. So I I feel that blame really should be uh, communicative and, as it were, mutually educative. That's That's the good kind of blame, it seems to me. I want to come back in a minute to this this notion that it's mutually educative. I think that's really interesting. But before we do that, does this sort of spectrum of blame going from the the sort of the, the micro actions to, to to the massive things does it work that way for forgiveness as well? That you know when someone kicks you in in by accident and you're walking down the street and you're like, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Is that the same kind of forgiveness? Because we, when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about forgiving our parents for, you know, a horrible childhood or forgiving a society for slavery. And, and it seems like when, when people talk about these things, they, that, that the kind of forgiveness that, that is, is moderate every day that we don't think twice about is so qualitatively different, quantitatively different that it's, qualitatively different, that it's a different concept. Is it all the same form of forgiveness, or are they really two different things? Well, it's a good question. I tend to think if if the two different things you have in mind are particularly trivial wrongs, and so with your example of someone kicking you um, as you go past, past them in the street, we have to imagine that they kind of did it on purpose. If it's just an accident, then it's not a wrong, and so forgiveness isn't really in order. But supposing they do... Uh, out of anger, <laughs> kick you in the shins and then apologize. Um, that's sort of one-on-one -on -one wrong. And then at the other end of the continuum, you mentioned, you know, f forgiving a whole nation for some uh, grave historical wrong. Maybe these things can be theorized so that they're sensibly thought of as being on a continuum. I don't think that's obvious, but I think it might be the case. And part of what governs whether we think of them as basically the same sort of attitude is kind of depends on how much you think that big collectives like governments and nations can be moral agents. And some people will be a bit skeptical about that and they think the whole business of countries, nation states making apologies for things or um, the whole citizenry of a nation uh, bearing collective guilt for something. Some people are skeptical about that whole idea. 
I'm not. I actually think it makes a great deal of sense. I think that there can be collective agents. I think that governments and juries and universities and neighbourhoods can do things. And it probably makes sense to think of these things as also able to have beliefs and commitments and values and a shared ethos. And if so, then, you know, then they can do stuff in the world which might be wrong. And then another agent, whether an individual or uh, another section of a population may or may not choose to forgive. So I think is I think there's nothing unintelligible about thinking that these aspects of individual moral psychology might find an analog at the collective level. So in that sense, I think one can make sense of them being on a continuum. But I'm not deeply committed to that. I just think that it's possible to uh, elaborate a little bit of theory that makes sense of the idea of collective agents and therefore can make sense of the idea of collective blaming and forgiving. Okay, so you said something in the beginning of that in passing that that I really want to get back to. You, you keep saying these little things. You're keeping me on my toes that I just I'm writing down. I'm like, oh no, we have to talk about these things. You said in passing that um, if you're if if it was an accident, if someone kicked you by accident, uh, it's not a wrong, and therefore you need not. To, be forgiven. But we say I'm sorry for accidents all the time. We we spill some water on someone totally accidentally. We ask for forgiveness. We, we, we're late for a, 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 an appointment through no fault of our own. We ask for forgiveness. So is it radical to say that forgiveness does not apply to uh, unintentional wrongs or things that are, that, that are not wronged? And, and if it's not. I mean, if this is how forgiveness wrong works, is apologizing just sort of performative utterances? Is, just, is it just shortcuts we use in our language to get past something? Is there no real substance to it? Yeah, so I think there are probably different ways of carving this up, but let me just share with you the way I think about it. I, I hear blaming and especially forgiving well, especially forgiving, as distinctive of the moral. Actually, I think there can be all kinds of non-moral blame, like, you know, you're playing football and one of the members of the team bungles a pass. You might blame them for bungling it. So that's a kind of non-moral blame. But forgiveness to me has a much more sort of distinctively moral ring to it. An apology is very broad. I mean, you know, I'm British. We apologise the whole time for everything. <laughs> I think we I'm always saying, oh, I'm so sorry, so sorry about this, so sorry about the other thing. Um, but even I would find it slightly weird change of register if someone in accepting my apology told me they forgave me for accidentally spilling the water on them. So maybe this is, you know, depends on the individual and the culture a little bit. But I, I think of apology as something very, very generic and not special to the moral. Rather like blame, I think, isn't very special to the moral. But forgiveness I hear as much more... Um, limited to the domain of wrongs rather than uh, accidental harm. So one way to remind myself about this territory is say that there's lots of harms which are not wrongs. For instance, my spilling the water accidentally on my colleague. And there can be wrongs too, which are not harms. So it may be that I could wrong someone uh, by, let's use the example of telling a lie again. I might tell a lie about someone that accidentally is a great advantage to them. So I haven't harmed them by doing it, but I did still wrong them because I was telling a lie about them. So harms and wrongs come apart. And I think that helps one see that 
Blame ranges over both harms and wrongs. Apology ranges over both harms and wrongs. But in my ear, and I acknowledge others might be different, but for my ear, forgiveness is really much more special to the category of wrongs, which is why I would find it so odd if someone forgave me for, for a little accident for which I'd apologized. So when we get back from the break, we'll get to the heart of your theory. We'll ask what the purpose of blame and forgiveness are, and then talk about what you've been calling uh, the communicative aspects and the educative aspects, and see if we can make sense of this in in, in just the way that, that you are hoping to do in your writing. But first, you're listening to Miranda Fricker and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Miranda Fricker about forgiveness and blame and trying to theorize it and put it in a philosophical context that allows us to understand all of the related issues. Um, I turned 50 last week, uh, and it hasn't been as monumental as I thought it would be, but it has been a moment of reflection. And when I think about my life, I think a lot about the mistakes I made when I was younger, the mistakes I made for other people. And this hasn't been enhanced by the whole Me Too discussion uh, of the last couple years and the fact that I teach and teach moral and political philosophy and I have to take these things seriously and my students ask me for advice and I have to be a role model. And I think about the ways that I wronged the people I dated, either intentionally or unintentionally, and I think about the ways that I, frankly, mistreated people because I was young, because I was naive, because times were different, because the conversation uh, took different forms. And I beat myself up a little bit over it, and I asked myself, what can I blame myself for and what can I forgive myself for? But the one thing that I don't expect to do is what you see in a lot of movies where the 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 older person usually a man the older man who is going through some life crisis decides to call up his old relationships and apologize and and I'm not going to do that I'm not going to find every person I dated and apologize for things that maybe they think I did maybe they think I didn't that feels self-indulgent and so I have to ask myself what is the purpose of all of this reflection Am I just having this conversation with myself? Am I being a narcissist? Am I just wallowing in my age? Or am I really trying to learn something? And so, Miranda, with with that in mind, what is the purpose of all this? Why do we blame and why do we forgive? Is Is this question itself part of the philosophical investigation that you're engaged in? Yes, I I think asking ourselves what the purpose or purposes of our various moral practices and in this case responses to wrongdoing is, is really 
important. I mean, for me, um, being able to stand back from the contingent forms of responses to wrongdoing and ask, is this a good way to live? Is this a good way, a useful way, a morally progressive way to respond to people when they wrong us or to respond to others who we see are doing wrongs? Uh, if we couldn't ask that question, it would then I don't know really what much of the point of moral philosophy is, because as it were, I like to think of moral <laughs> philosophy as able, not, not this is not his only task, but as able to help us be more critically reflective and therefore more autonomous and more self-determining in how we carve up our moral world, how we live together. And so if we look around at our various practices of blaming that we've inherited, as you said at the beginning, from all sorts of different traditions, I mean, I think of, you know, uh, where where we are, whoever we are, we are many different groups already, just thinking about where I'm sitting here in New York City and then expanding out to the US and elsewhere in the world. There are many different moral communities and an individual person might themselves be a member of more than one moral community. There's already such a multiplicity of styles and sets of meanings that are associated with, say, blaming someone or forgiving someone, we really need to be able to set back and think, well, which ones are useful? Which ones do I actually want to continue with and live by? And people may come up with rather different answers to that question, and that, as it were, they're right. But I really like the idea that we might be at least capable in principle of shaking off some of the more toxic forms of blaming. I certainly feel that in my own life, that I... I suppose I, when I started thinking about blame, I was at first just sort of keen to defend this, what I think of as a functional idea of blame, that we communicate that it hurt us, that we were treated this way, and that might help the wrongdoers see what they've done and bring them to their senses. But I also felt that I wasn't quite sure what I thought about retribution. And lots of people find the idea that blame is essentially retributive, a very natural idea. So just because that person did a wrong, they deserve to suffer. Maybe that's not everyone's idea of retribution, but it is the core of the idea that I work with. And that's an idea that's at the heart of, uh, you know, the penal system and ideas about punishment in general. And I've gradually realized that I don't believe in it. I don't think there's anything there. Um, I think that the idea that someone deserves to suffer because they've done wrong is a sort of botched version of a good idea, which is that if I've done wrong, it's good that I should be brought to feel a certain particular kind of pain in relation to the wrong that I've done, namely the pain of remorse. Because when I'm brought by the person I've wronged to realise the seriousness of what I've done, to realise how it was wrong to lie or wrong to betray or whatever it might be, that is very painful. I mean, the, the pain of real remorse and realising this is what I did is a very painful thing. That's useful, but that's not a retributive idea. That's a partly backward-looking because it looks to the wrong that I've done, but importantly forward-looking because it's hoping to educate me and get me to come to see so that I won't do it again. And that's a very valuable practice, which I think is, is really not retributive in kind, but can easily be mistaken for a general retributive model. So something that I feel I've learned for myself is just that I do not believe in retribution. I don't believe in it between individuals when it's just our own interpersonal ethical behavior and I personally don't believe in it as vis-a-vis -vis the prison system either. So 
in the second paper, the later paper that you wrote that that you sent me, you quote in the process Adam Smith and his theory of moral sentiments. And you use that to show that there is a history of, of, of this approach of blame and this, this response to educate people to remorse. But you also have something else in common, which is you think that remorse is painful. What purpose does the pain serve if it's not retributive? Why would we want someone to be unhappy with themselves in this way if the goal is not punishment? I would say the purpose is to become directly acquainted with the moral significance of what one has done, to actually see the moral reality of what one has done. And that's what's painful because it was me that did it. I did this. I can't believe I did this. Very often when people... um, are brought to a moment of moral honesty to really confront what they've done. Uh, They feel uh, the pain of that, but it's just the confrontation of the moral reality. And I think the, um, I suppose I secretly sort of think there's an intrinsic value in being in reality and not being deluded. (laughs) Um, I like the idea of our critical thinking with each other and our practices of of blaming and forgiving as helping to put us all in direct contact with the moral moral reality we are living in. So, but I wouldn't really need to defend that idea to defend this notion of blame because one could just think, well, it's more forward-looking because if someone really grasps the moral significance of what they've done, they're much less likely to do it again in the future. And so you could take a much more sort of practical view and just say, look, the value is forward-looking. The value is all about how they're not going to think like that again. They'll think twice before they lie to a friend or betray a partner or you know make assumptions that are stereotypical or whatever it is. So you could just take that practical view and say, the point of blame is all about educating each other so that we do better in the future. But I suppose, as I say, I sneakily, perhaps it's the philosopher in me, I kind of also value something else on the side, which is I value the idea that we succeed in living in a shared reality, including the reality of the moral truth about what we've done. I want to ask a question. I'm not entirely sure how to frame it, and I think it's a little more complicated than I want it to be, but, but, but I'll try Uh, Our third episode of the show 10 years ago was with Charles Griswold, who um, wrote a book on on forgiveness, which I know you've cited. Charles, uh, for those who are playing at home, was my dissertation advisor on Adam Smith. And, um, And his approach to forgiveness was to look at a lot of historical figures and sort of parse out a theory that comes from the history of philosophy, very consistent with his other work. And then a few years later, we had a uh, philosopher by the name of Thane Rosenbaum on who made for an an argument for revenge, arguing for the retributive aspect that you're talking about. And he told a lot of stories. And he really appealed to people's emotions, but also appealed to certain narratives. If people were to look at your articles on forgiveness and blame, they would see something a bit more technical, a bit more conceptual, something that many people would would interpret as coming out of what gets called the analytic tradition of philosophy. And you quote Bernard Williams, a very famous analytic philosopher. You seem to be looking at the concept of, of, of blame and forgiveness and trying to deduce uh, within the language and within the use 
standards and limitations of the idea, whereas these other folks were looking at the history of philosophy and stories uh, to come up with a theory. What do we get, what do we gain from looking at the concept? How do we, what does the, the again, I'm stereotyping here, but what is the analytic approach, this, this linguistic, conceptual, conceptual, technical approach to philosophy bring to the discussion that you think is important and, 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 and what does that add that maybe we weren't able to do with a more historical uh, approach that at least the predecessors on this show have, have, have engaged in? Is that a fair question? I think it is. It's interesting to hear you describe. I, I see that my approach is in a certain way more obviously analytical, philosophical than, say, Charles Griswold's wonderful treatment of forgiveness, which has a more um, somewhat, as you say, looks looks at other philosophical treatments of forgiveness and so on. But in another way, I, I don't think of myself as really concerned with the concepts. I think of myself as concerned with our practices above all. So I do say something about our concepts of blaming and forgiving, but mainly in order to sort of set it aside, because I think one of the interesting things about analytic philosophy is its characteristic method is to take a word or a concept and to try and define that concept. And sometimes that might be a kind of interesting method that takes you a long way and gets you into a really interesting, interesting discussion. But other times, and this is what I suggest might happen with both blaming and forgiving, it might be a kind of a dead-end conversation because if you're interested in the aspects of a practice which are helpful in explaining what they do for us, their function in our moral life, then there might be the most interesting philosophical aspects of the practices. So, for instance, with blaming that if you communicate it, then you, you aim to educate the wrongdoer that might just fall away because obviously it's not a feature of every single possible um, uh, moment of blaming. It's not going to be what philosophers call a necessary condition. There's lots of kinds of blame which don't contain that educative aim. And yet I want to look at social functionality and therefore I don't want to get stuck into the business of defining because any definition of blame is going to have sort of lost the features I'm most interested in. So in that sense, I'm not doing the analytic philosophical thing, but you're absolutely right that I'm sort of trying to build a little theoretical model out of certain observations about our practices. And so I try to build a little model that shows how blaming and forgiving might fit together in terms of their slightly different functions. And so I suggest that the best function of blaming someone is that it brings them to a full awareness of the moral significance of what they've done. And then that explains what forgiveness is primarily for, what its primary function is, which is that once blame has done that job, there's no further job for blame feeling to do because the wrongdoer is now remorseful for what she's done and she fully gets the moral significance. So why carry on with the blame feelings? That's where forgiveness swoops in to make sense of our efforts to 
relinquish those blame feelings because they've already done their job. And so forgiveness, I argue, though I'm sure people might disagree, but I, I argue that the primary functional value of forgiveness is to free me, the wronged party, of my blame feelings when those blame feelings can no longer play any morally useful role because they've already done their job of bringing the person to be sorry for what they've done. I don't say that's the only role of forgiveness, but I'll just mention those two because they, they show how I'm trying to show that blaming and forgiving have moral social functions which fit together. Okay, so to sort of summarize, uh, what you're suggesting is blame is useful because it forces people to improve their morality, to encounter what they've done. Uh, it has this educative function. And that when we blame people this is only useful for a certain period of time. So we don't want to blame perpetually, both for others and for ourselves. And what forgiveness does is give us the ability to stop blaming and to move on. Now, part of what my question was hinting at, um, although I wasn't aware of it, I have it in my notes, but I wasn't aware of it until you mentioned, was that there is this distinction between creating definitions of these concepts and looking at these things as moral practices. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what this phrase moral practice means and why it's so useful in leading to the things that you just described, the sort of functionality. What do we mean by a moral practice? And how is a moral practice different than just saying, okay, I'm going to define what blame is. I'm going to define what forgiveness is. Mm. Well, if you focus on moral practices, you're focusing on the things that we do, the kinds of responses we actually tend to make towards people who wrong us. And it seems to me that that's an amazingly diverse set of practices. Same with forgiveness, all sorts of different ways of forgiving people, different meanings that uh, different cultures and individuals will associate with what forgiving really amounts to. And so you've got diversity, both in practices of blaming and in practices of forgiving. Now, diversity doesn't fit very well with the analytic ambition of coming up with a set of necessary and sufficient conditions, as, as we say, i.e. a strict definition, a list of features that absolutely all cases of blaming will have, and which, if anything, has all of those features, it must count as a case of blaming. Now, um, what you're going to end up with if you try and define, say, blame is some very, very core minimal notion. In fact, I think we have got one. I think finding fault with someone for an act or omission is a perfectly workable definition of blaming. But it doesn't get us anywhere in terms of thinking about which practices of blaming are good ones for us to carry on with. It doesn't get us anywhere near contrasting retributive blame, from with forward-looking educative blame at all. And so for me, the whole business of analysing and coming up with definitions is just doesn't get us very far, doesn't get, get us to the interesting, good, critical stuff that I think moral philosophy should be capable of, of helping us thinking about which sorts of practices of these things do we want to carry on with. It also doesn't get us to un, any understanding of how the different practices of, say, forgiving relate to each other. So you mentioned Charles Griswold's book, which I love, he he really gives a very, I would say, um, narrow, I mean, on, on deliberately narrow definition or characterization of forgiving, whereby it always involves uh, 
something like remorseful apology on the part of the wrongdoer. And that's a very recognisable moral model of forgiving. We might call it conditional forgiveness, as it's often called in the literature. You don't forgive uh, except on condition that they apologise for what they've done. But of course, religious and secular traditions give us a completely different kind of forgiving too, which is something more like associated with the idea of grace, which is a in part a Christian notion, but uh, it's also a pre-Christian notion. Seneca used the notion of something like grace. And that's where you forgive unconditionally. Someone has wronged you and you just forgive anyway, even though they're not remorseful or apologetic and perhaps never will be, but you elect to forgive anyway for whatever reason. Now, that's an interesting question. What's the rationality of that kind of forgiveness when there's no apology? And how is that kind of forgiveness related to the conditional kind of forgiveness? You know, do they do they both really deserve to be called the same thing, given how different they are? And that's where a practice-oriented approach can come in and be useful, I think, because, um, well, maybe this is going to be a bit sort of tedious, but I, I think that the unconditional kind of forgiving is a kind of re- rearrangement in time of its of the elements of the conditional kind of forgiving and I I don't know if this is the moment to explain what I mean by that but I'm I'm very happy to or would that be a good idea right now well, well let let us get there because because um, that's a lot and, and and you've said a lot and and you you call it and I think this is a really useful way of, of describing it. you call this distinction in your writing gifted forgiveness versus moral justice forgiveness and so by gifted forgiveness you mean this sort of grace tradition of i am going to forgive you regardless of whether you're remorseful regardless of whether you've atoned because i am giving you the gift of forgiveness the way that God has given us the ability to forgive through grace or other things. Whereas moral justice forgiveness is, I'm forgiving you for a purpose. I'm forgiving you for, you used a, the phrase progressive morality earlier on. Um, and so this distinction of giving forgiveness versus forgiveness for a purpose is, is part of it. And also, I keep thinking about um, I, I don't know how much television you watch, but I think a lot of our listeners will be watching a show called The Good Place. And The Good Place has a, a character who's a moral philosopher who, if you have not seen, is the best written moral philosopher on television ever. His name is Chidi. He is incredibly funny. And someone, whoever wrote him, knows philosophers because it's it's it, he's so funny, it's embarrassing to me. Uh, and... Chidi is very, very narrow and very, very pedagogical and pedantic, and he, he wants to give people lessons. And what the show is about is people learning and engaging in practices and trying to negate this idea that you learn things just by reading about them. You have to experience them. And so in anticipation of what you're trying to say, I guess, would you talk a little bit more about this idea of forgiveness as... I lost the thread of the question, but forgiveness as a gift that um, is independent of our lives and independent of our consequences and just something we're supposed to do because love, because God, because we have to be whole human beings, as opposed to forgiveness which serves this purpose that then, as you said, um, reorders time in order to not just acknowledge things, but actually make things 
better and 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 move things forward. Uh, that was that was a fairly long-winded summary, but does, is is that a fair account of what you're trying to do? And 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 can you talk a little bit about the terms you use and then how this relates to reordering time? Yes. So. If our thinking about forgiveness starts from an, the initial puzzle of, look, we have these two apparently really different practices, responses to wrongdoing, which are both called forgiveness. One is the conditional kind of forgiveness, which I call moral justice forgiveness. So I wrong someone and uh, they blame me and they wait to forgive me until I am properly sorry. And I've grasped the moral significance of what I've done and I've expressed it in apology. Um, in order to forgive me. So we might say that their forgiveness towards me is conditional upon my expressing an attitude of remorse towards what I've done that displays I really get how bad it was. By contrast, um, the unconditional kind, which as you say, I call gifted forgiveness, can seem really baffling because I've wronged someone and they just upfront forgive me before I've really you know, even thought about how wrong it was what I did. And sometimes this can be a really baffling kind of act of moral generosity, which people find it hard to make sense of. And indeed, sometimes you know, in public circumstances, when people publicly forgive wrongdoers for, for terrible things they might have done, sometimes people are really angry about it. And they say, oh, they shouldn't have just forgiven that person. They should have, you know, waited for some proper punishment to happen, etc. So it can be very controversial, this, this idea of gifted forgiving, as I call it. But if we step back and take this more functional moral practice view that I'm keen on, I think it can help us solve the puzzle, both of how come these two apparently very different practices really do both belong to the same species and how they are both modes of, they both belong to the family of practices through which we hold people accountable. We're not just letting someone off the hook when we uh, gift forgive them, or at least not necessarily. Here's why. So if we look at the moral justice forgiveness, the conditional kind of forgiveness. And we observe that the condition of forgiveness is the remorseful expression of apology. That's the um, the grasping of mor moral reality that I've been saying is so uh, valuable, the educative moment, if you like. Now, that has to be, that has to happen before, prior to the forgiveness in this case. But where does it fit in, if at all, on the gifted forgiveness case? Well, many people have observed that if you gift forgive people, and you, you, as it were, shock them morally by this great act of generosity up front, even before they've really acknowledged the reality of what they've done, you can thereby often cause them to feel remorseful just because they're in a certain way made sort of humbled by the act of generosity. So the surprising thing... I have thing, to interrupt for a second. Yeah. I, I see no evidence of that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, oh, really? that, that's the skeptic in me. And, 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 and maybe this is, right, one of the many reasons why I do not, you know, I'm not a Christian. I, this, what you're describing now is the theme of many, many, many movies, especially movies from the 1940s, where this, this, figure of 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 evil and an awfulness is is forgiven and they see the kindness and the joy and and the love and the divine and the forgiveness and that alone causes them to 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 to, to see remorse i don't I don't. I know you're not defending gift, uh, gifted forgiveness, and I know that your argument ultimately is that gifted forgiveness is 
uh, you say I think you say parasitical, but but is is a, 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 a deviation from from your, the other kind of forgiveness. But is this really believable? Is is there evidence to suggest that showing love and kindness to bad people makes them become loving and kind? Because I, my experience with humanity <laughs> is that this is not the case. I think. Well, it's an empirical question, so I can't pretend to, <laughs> right. you know, have done lots and lots of research. There right. is apparently some empirical research about it in some contexts. Glenn Pettigrove, in his book on love and forgiveness, um, he cites quite a lot of empirical evidence. But you know, there may be empirical evidence against as well. So I can't. I, I obviously I shouldn't just cherry pick the occasional scientific paper which seems to support it. I would be with you. I mean, when when people's Badness is very deeply entrenched, you know, that it can just be a sort of silly fantasy to think they're going to be changed by a great act of generosity, although I think surely it's sometimes possible. But um, if I feel much more convinced by this when I think of uh, how good, you know, basically good people wrong each other quite often, you know, good people do bad things, that's life. And blaming the communication of blame can often set up barriers, set up more hostility, make people more defensive and therefore much less likely that they come to a moment of honesty with themselves about what they really That's know they did in their heart of hearts anyway. And I really do believe that um, when you just decide to let something go, forgive up front, I mean, this probably wouldn't work if it was some great self-indulgent performance of forgiveness. That's always going to be irritating. But if in fact... You've wronged someone. Your heart of hearts, you kind of really know you treated them a bit badly, but you're kind of setting that aside for the moment. And then instead of fighting you about it, they come to you and they basically behave in a way that shows you they're just letting it go. It's okay. That is much more likely to have that have the wrongdoer sort of put their guard down and come to a moment of honesty about what they've done than continuing blaming hostility. So that I do believe in. I do think there is a great power of generosity between good people who mistreat each other, which is a very, very common thing. So when you use the word communicative uh, in, in the role of we have to communicate blame to another person, it brings with it uh, the sort of the network of ideas, including the rhetoric of it and the pedagogy, the teaching aspect. And so what, you, what, what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that when people are blamed, they can be really defensive. And if they're defensive, they're not going to learn. And mm. if you respond with this gift of forgiveness, if this unconditional forgiveness, it allows them to avoid being defensive, and therefore they're more capable of, of, of learning and growing because they're not on the, they're, 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 they're more open to their own change and their own self-awareness as opposed to just fighting against the accusation. Exactly, exactly. I think it it opens up a channel of sort of honesty which can be blocked mm. by the defensiveness that overt blame can sometimes bring about. So, you know, a lot of this is a matter of style. As I say, I mean, I think I... I, I one might uh, become... 
less, you know, if I'd done something wrong and somebody gives an annoying, self-indulgent, moralistic performance of how they forgive me up front, I'm less likely to acknowledge what I've done wrong than I would if they just blamed me directly. It's like, come on. Because one of the the dysfunctional forms of forgiveness that I'm very interested in is all all the sort of um, grandiose or self-indulgent or basically passive-aggressive forms of forgiveness. So I'm very interested in how... You know, like many of our most interesting moral practices, forgiveness is not just that forgiveness can go wrong in the way that any practice can go wrong because of things from the outside. I think there are certain features of the very effort of forgiving someone which make it intrinsically likely that it starts taking slightly corrupted or deteriorated forms. So, for instance, if I'm someone's wronged me and I'm trying to forgive them up front because I'm thinking, say... I don't want to jeopardize our friendship over this. They're not really sorry, but, you know, never mind. It's just not worth addressing the issue. So I'm just going to try and let it go as it is. I'm busy trying to sort of suppress my blame feelings towards them in what should be and what I genuinely intend to be a kind of magnanimous act for the sake of our friendship. I'm just trying to be bigger, be the bigger person on this occasion and rise above it. But of course, that very effort of me trying to kind of not pay attention to my own continuing blame feelings is a kind of recipe for self-deception. Sometimes it might work and sometimes it won't. And I might be, as we say, the last person in the room to realize I still haven't forgiven them. Everyone else might be able to read it off the surface of my behavior. I'm just busy not looking at my blame feelings because I'm trying to suppress them for the sake of forgiving. But the possibility of self self-deception and a kind of passive-aggressive behaviour towards the person who's wronged me is just built into my efforts of repressing my own blame feelings for the sake of trying to forgive up front in this gifted way. And so I'm fascinated by how our very best efforts at forgiving are intrinsically fragile and prone to go wrong. And I think that makes human beings rather beautiful and fragile and, and flawed. Okay, so then let me ask a question that has been nagging at me for a bit. It's more about the moral justice forgiveness, but it, it directly relates to something that you've, you've said here, which is you describe moral justice forgiveness as withholding forgiveness until someone feels genuine remorse, and then you can forgive them. And it allows for um, the growth isn't after the, 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 the act, the gifted act, but it's before, and so there's this check. If that's the case, if if the forgiver is withholding until someone is, has remorse, who has the power in this situation? Does the forgiver withhold the power or have the power, or does the person who refuses or is unable to feel remorse have the power? And I ask this because so much of our public political discourse is about power and let's uh, use the, the idea of, of marginalization of marginalized people uh, wanting to be recognized, wanting their history to be acknowledged, and the people who have the power, the majority or the minority who, who, who has, has manipulated things, refusing to acknowledge. And so part of our public political discourse is, 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 is a fight of power over how to give people who are powerless more power, how do people who have more power, either they maintain that power or, or have their power diminished by other things. And if at some central element this is about forgiveness and blame, 
isn't the power relation of forgiveness and blame an essential component? So who has the power, uh, the forgiver or the forgivee? Yes, I think there are so many different dimensions of power that can be at work in a given context um, that it's hard to answer that question. But if, if I can confine myself to the idea that there's a particular exchange of power we might call it moral power in you know, as it were local exchange of moral power in a, a wrong being done, an expression of blame being forthcoming, perhaps or perhaps not an apology and then a forgiving. If we think of ourselves as confined to those powers just for the moment before opening it out to other kinds of social power, which might lie behind the wrongdoing and its prevalence and all the rest of it, then I believe that there is a kind of power exerted by, or there can be a kind of power exerted by a blamer who communicates their blame to the wrongdoer, namely the power to change the mind of the wrongdoer, the power to, to educate them, to get them to see the reality of what they've done. Now, that, that can be a kind of power, and it's very distinctively and obviously a kind of power if the wrongdoer doesn't yet see things that way. So supposing it's a case where there's a real changing of minds that's required to get someone to see the wrong that they've done. Supposing they, you mentioned Me Too and, you know, fast, I suppose over the last decades, fairly fast changing norms around dating and sexual mores and what counts as professional behaviour and all the rest of it. Supposing in a moment of social transition over what's appropriate behaviour in a workplace, a blamer who's been treated in a really uh, sexist way, uh, perhaps, you know, uh, kind of having her word overlooked around the boardroom table or maybe sort of sexual jokes being made or something like that. Supposing she, she may be someone of very little power in general in that office situation or less power than the men around her, but she might succeed in exerting some moral power if she succeeds in making her complaint, casting blame towards the wrongdoer in question and actually getting him to change his mind. That's a kind of moral power which she might exert, even in a context of relative social powerlessness. And then a different sort of example with a forgiver. It's hard to know how to talk about forgiveness in relation to power because one, especially when it's gifted forgiveness or unconditional forgiveness, sometimes people worry that that looks like you're just handing, letting someone off and handing all the power over to them. But the Holocaust survivor, Ava Kaur, writes about forgiveness in a way which... Uh, casts the forgiver as reclaiming a kind of power that was taken away from her when she was persecuted. So she teaches others to uh, address, write a letter to their wrongdoer, a persecutor, and then never post it, keep it, keep it to themselves, because it's a kind of communicative statement with which they actively withhold from the wrongdoer. So the forgiveness is not communicated, but it does achieve its what I think of as its primary point, though not its only point, which is to relieve the wronged party of blame feelings which can no longer do any good. And that Ava Core characterizes as a reclaiming of power from the person who took it away from you by treating you badly. And I think that's a really interesting idea and helps me understand one of the moral power dynamics that's involved in forgiving. And it helped me stop thinking about forgiving as something that's necessarily meek and mild, as it were. It's actually a very empower can be a very empowering thing to do. So one of the things that's happened in the course of this conversation 
is that we've acknowledged, in a way that at least I didn't in the beginning, how abstract these ideas are. When we first started talking, I was thinking about forgiveness as blame and blame as really concrete instances of interpersonal relations, of arguments between people, of, of, of again, dealing with psychological health, very practical, uh, possibly even empirical instances of human behavior. But when you talked about moral power, it really helped me see that what we're engaged in is a very abstract enterprise because political power has real consequences that we can identify in terms of public policy and other things. But moral power is more about, and I'm not 100% comfortable with this example, but the, the balancing scales of the universe, right? This is one of the reasons why I suppose forgiveness has such religious connotations. So this is also abstract and and. So I, I okay. I'm going to ask a question again, probably an unfair question, and particular and, and and those people who are fans of Harry Potter book seven will know the answer to this. But but if it's so abstract, what makes it real? Why is this so substantive? Why is this so meaningful? Why is this so real? If the ideas that we're talking about, like writing a letter to uh, perpetrators, but keeping it to yourself so no one knows and has is aware of that that moral power change but yourself. If it's also abstract, why is it so powerful? Why is it so real? Yes, I know what you mean about the abstraction. I, I, I rather like, that's one of the things I like about philosophy is you start with something that's a very, you know, real, concrete, interpersonal interaction and you think about it enough so that you start uh, thinking of it in these very sort of <laughs> transcendent ways. But uh, for me, I find them all real. I mean, one of the things about uh, particularly forgiveness, I mean, when you blame someone, you're really kind of, you're kind of in their face, whether you're really in their face or just in your own head you're in their face, but you're like directly kind of responding to what they've done and finding fault with it and judging it. That's pretty concrete. And then forgiving is a little different. In a way, forgiving is essentially a transcendent idea. And it's something to do with, um, you know, the reforms of forgiving, and these are the ones I'm interested in, that really are part of our practices through which we hold people accountable. And part of the defense I try to give of gifted forgiving, the unconditional kind of forgiving, is that it's not just letting people off the hook. It does belong to the family of ways we hold each other accountable insofar as gifted forgiving has a connection, a non-accidental connection with the wrongdoer coming to see the error of their ways, just as blame does, only it's much more sort of indirect in the case of forgiving. But then there's, there's another kind of forgiving, which is much more kind of transcendent. You can imagine, um, you know, the, the metaphor of rising above, it becomes almost part of the phenomenology of forgiveness when it gets like this. So you sort of rise above and you see, you look at us all with all our in the fray of human moral engagements and we you know so we we wrong each other we react we try to get each other to see things differently it's all all a big buzzing exchange of energies and then sometimes you rise so far above or step so far back from that fray <laughs> that you're just kind of looking at all our human interactions, not from a God's eye point of view, but, you know, from halfway up a mountain. And you just 
don't engage anymore and you kind of have a much more general feeling of forgiveness towards those who've wronged you which isn't a way of trying to get them to see anything it's just a kind of letting go and I think sometimes uh, religious forms of forgiveness particularly have that in mind and I I think I'm fascinated by it because I I do think that that kind of forgiveness let's call it transcendent forgiveness where there really isn't any connection with getting anyone to see the error of their ways that is a kind of forgiveness which does not belong to the family of practices through which we hold each other accountable and in that sense um, really is a rather different sort of thing and is much more abstract because it's not aiming at anything in the world. It's, it's exited the normal causal fray. I think it might be a very useful resource, a good place to be able to go sometimes, but it's not a responsible place. It's not a, it's not a place where you're holding anyone responsible or being responsible yourself. It's just a way of transcending the fray and leaving it and finding a place of calm. And I think for one's mental and spiritual health, that might be very important. But it's it's categorically different for me from any of the kinds of forgiveness that I would wish to defend because they're part of what it is to hold each other responsible. And so I, I, I find that a kind of interesting um, distinction to make between the modes of forgiveness that are morally engaged and a mode of forgiveness which is precisely disengaged and that is a very abstract place to be and it's a useful place to be able to go when it's all too much (laughs) or when nothing can be achieved through further moral engagement or you're just too tired to bother but so mental health yes but it's not part of holding each other accountable and I I I kind of like that distinction. So I'm going to ask another question that I'm really formulating as I'm speaking, because as you talked about this uh, transcendent forgiveness, the the example that came to mind is Sartre's No Exit. For those who haven't read it, there are three people trapped in a room in an afterlife, and they could leave at any time, but they choose not to because of their own personal foibles. And they could leave, at least in theory, at any time. And so transcendent Forgiveness seems like a manifestation of human freedom. We can do it if we choose, but we choose not to or we choose to depending on ourselves. And so the question I'm trying to get at is, does gifted forgiveness and moral justice forgiveness, does it have the same relationship with human freedom or because it is a part of moral practices those questions, we have to bracket those questions, we have to put them aside, and really it's about social and political and moral interactions as opposed to the questions of what it means to be a free human being who has choice. Does, I, I, I'm not sure that I've articulated the question well. Does, does the question make sense? Yes, it does, and I think it's very helpful to think of different kinds of forgiveness in relation to freedom. And one way to uh, get into the relationship is thinking about our reasons to forgive. So a kind of natural first off thought about the difference between moral justice forgiveness, where you wait for the apology, and gifted forgiveness, where you go ahead and forgive up front, is that, um, you know, when you get the apology, then you kind of have to forgive because that's the deal. That's the condition it's been met. So you have to forgive. Whereas gifted forgiveness is always, yeah, a gift. It's up to me. I don't think that would be quite right, because even in the case of moral justice forgiveness, I wouldn't say that the reasons to forgive, including the apology, etc., etc., ever amount 
to a directed obligation to the wrongdoer to forgive them. In a sense, it's always there's always something gift-like and elective about forgiveness. However, I do think um, there's such a thing as being, you know, at fault for being unforgiving. So supposing someone had lied to me about something that was important and they're terribly remorseful. Maybe they're a friend of mine and they just can't believe they did it and they're saying how sorry they are and they're trying to make amends, but I'm just not forgiving them. I'm just not letting it go. And other friends might say to me, you know, come on, you've, what, what do you want from him? I mean, he said he's sorry and, you know, he, he didn't mean it. He won't do it again. You know, I'm being really unforgiving. So I think I can be at fault for failing to forgive. But I don't think even in those circumstances that I owe him, the liar, an apology. I think I've got lots and lots and lots of reasons to forgive, which are stacking up and meaning it amounting to the situation where I really ought to forgive, but I'm failing to forgive. But it's not like I owe him something in a directed way that I'm failing to give him. And that shows up in the fact that were he to claim his right to forgiveness from me, that would be weird. I mean, that would be like, you know, claiming my right to a birthday present from someone who normally gives me a birthday present. So I might, they might be uh, at fault for forgetting my birthday this year when we have a practice of always re uh, remembering each other's birthdays. But I couldn't claim my right to my birthday present from. That's just not in the spirit of the thing. So I think that reveals that forgiving, even when it's of the moral justice kind, is always kind of a gift. Um, and in that sense... Um, the particular sort of freedom, the freedom that goes with doing things electively rather than being obliged by reason or any other thing, that is common to both kinds of forgiveness. Um, but another another connection with freedom is is really this more much more general thing which we started with, which is the idea that we should be able to step back from any particular form of a practice of forgiving that we've grown up with and ask ourselves, do I like this kind of forgiving? Is this a helpful way to carry on? And it could be that one was brought up in a particular environment where forgiving was closely meshed with a really censorious, retributive kind of blaming and forgiving is only ever done after the most, you know, um, uh, sort of, you know, acts of, acts of uh, self-blame and self-harm that were very extreme. Then we ought to be able to stand back from that and say, no, I, I want to live a different way. I don't like these moral practices. I think that they're harmful and we need to reinvent our moral practices. That is an act of moral freedom of a sort of spectacular cultural kind that we can say no to the practices we inherit and insist on trying to modify them for the better. So there's two connections with freedom, both of which I think are very important in understanding our relation to these uh, responses to moral wrongdoing. All right. So, so for our sort of last interaction our, 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 as, as we're winding down, I want to go back to something you, you said in, the, in, in your answer. And in a certain sense, what I'm asking you to do is, is <laughs> the, the teacher thing was, could you repeat your answer in different words, right? But, but, but you said something in passing that is profoundly both important. It's an important question. And also, it is the question that will be on a lot of people's minds. And so I, I want to revisit it. And the question is, do we have a moral obligation to forgive? And so I want to ask that very directly, which, again, may involve you repeating some of the things you said. But also, if we don't have a moral obligation to forgive, then how can we be at fault for not forgiving in the example that, that you gave? So, so is there a moral obligation to forgive? 
And if there isn't, how do we make sense of the fact that even though we don't have a moral obligation, there are times when we probably really should and we're kind of being jerky if we don't? How do you reconcile those two things? If the notion of moral obligation that you're working with there is this sort of directed or dyadic one that I would actually owe the wrongdoer that I forgive them, then I don't think we have a moral obligation to forgive. But if the notion of obligation one works with is a, all things considered, having really strong moral reasons to forgive that person, then yes, we can often be in that situation. In a way, it's the ordinary situation when someone has apologised. So it, a, lot of, a lot of the answer to the question turns on what, whether one thinks the notion of moral obligation is this special, magical, sort of directed thing that overrides all other kinds of reasons, or whether one is happy with the idea that actually there's quite heterogeneous reasons to forgive. So you see, I, I think that in, in a lot of the philosophy literature, you have people saying, well, there's it's a good thing to forgive, but it's only really proper forgiveness if you're forgiving for exactly the right kinds of reasons. So someone might think the only right kinds of reasons are if the person's apologised or something like that. I really don't agree with that. I think that you know when you read a more generalist literature on forgiveness, the, the normal central cases of forgiving, and especially of, as it were, morally spectacular forgiving after very grave wrongdoing, are rarely... Uh, uh, about the wrongdoer and how apologetic they've been. They are usually uh, about the person who's been wronged. And people say things like, I just had to forgive because I couldn't bear to go on being this angry. I didn't want to be this person anymore. It's a, it's, they're often reasons that are about the wronged party's own healing. And that's why, that's part of what I take from Ava Kaur's um, writings on these things, that, you know, First and foremost, not only, but first and foremost, or primarily, the most basic reasons to forgive are about getting rid of blame feelings that can do no good. So it's for me, the person who's being wronged. Then one step down the line, it might be just as important, could even be more morally important, but there'd be a secondary reason to forgive, which is that it'll make the wrongdoer feel better. I want to let them know that I don't consider them on the hook anymore. We, I want to move on. That's another excellent reason to forgive. But it's not, as I see it, the primary reason, if you sort of mean, because one can choose to forgive even though the person who's wronged you is dead or long gone or, as in ever cause, unmailed letters. You're not going to communicate it even though you could. So I think that reveals that um, uh, one's, one's basic thing that one is doing in forgiving is recovering from wrongdoing when the continued blame feeling would do no good. And then thereafter, you can have all, all sorts of other sorts of reasons. And so there are self-directed ethical reasons of self-care, and then there are other directed ethical reasons relating to the fact that they've apologised and you want them to not feel so bad anymore. And maybe other reasons. You could decide if you're in the middle of a hideous divorce and the kids are really suffering, you can think, I've got to forgive them because look what's happening to the kids. That's about them. That's about others. And you think, I've got to make this effort. That too is a rather different sort of uh, uh, third party related reason of care. So I, I think all these rather different sorts of reasons, some of which sound a bit more prudential almost, others sound more squarely moral, all stack up to be excellent reasons to forgive. 
And none of them ever are going to create a kind of dyadic obligation in some magic sense of moral obligation, but they can create a, a situation where I'm really at fault for failing to forgive someone because look at all the damage that's being caused by my not forgiving them. So what we have, again, is something akin to a legal framework, which is a person doesn't have a moral obligation to forgive in the sense that you have to, no question, you are uh, punished if you don't. But if there's a preponderance of evidence, if there's all of these reasons to forgive and you don't, we can say you're not acting in your own best interests. You're not doing the thing that is going to be the healthiest. You're not going to do, do the thing that is going to move the conversation, society, the wrong forward, and heal, learn, educate, and all that sort of stuff. And so in the end, one of the central questions of forgiveness is not other-oriented but internal, which is blame carries with it tremendous weight for both the blamer and the blamee, the blamed, but forgiveness is weightless. And even if you forgive wrongly, it's still not a wrong that you carry with you for the rest of your life because it releases you and it makes you free. I think that's very fair summary. I mean, I think we can make sense of the idea that you can forgive someone prematurely, you can forgive when you shouldn't have mm -hmm. forgiven them. And I think most of the time that's a question of um, letting go of blame feelings when those blame feelings still had a job to do. They, they stood a chance of persuading him that he was wrong in how he was treating you and you let it go too soon, if you see what I mean. Um, right. But on the whole, I mean, so maybe that means that it's not quite weightless, but letting go of blame feelings when they really are redundant, either because they've done their job or because they never can do that job. You know, supposing someone really wrongs you badly who is never going to change. You've tried to persuade them, you know, you, you cannot treat me like this, but they're just never going to change. I think that could be a situation where you can forgive. I don't, I don't say you should forgive, but you have reason to forgive because your continued blame feelings are going to do no good. But you also have reason to move away from that person, to take yourself out of the line of fire, if you see what I mean. So I think we have to be very careful to distinguish, as it were, immoral emotional acts of forgiving from Dis practical decisions about whether to stay in a relationship with someone or to stay in the line of fire, as I've put it, because one can decide to leave someone, divorce them or move away or cut them out of one's social life, whatever it might be, even while one chooses to forgive because one just doesn't want to carry that baggage anymore. And I think that can be an excellent reason to forgive. Well, at that note, you have given us so much to think about and given us a range of understanding of forgiveness from the gift to the moral justice to the transcendent. And I think that a lot of us found our own experiences in the conversation, not just the philosophical ideas, which are intriguing, but also helping us make sense of our own choices. So Miranda, thank you so much for joining us on Why. Thank you so much, Jack. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. You have been listening to Miranda Fricker and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. 
You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We were talking with Miranda Fricker about forgiveness and blame and what they mean. Philosophers like to ask what questions? What is forgiveness? What is blame? In the history we have asked, what is justice? And what is love? And what is truth? And what is beauty? The what question, what is X, is the central question of philosophy. But in this instance, what is forgiveness and what is blame? are really stand-ins for a deeper, more emotional question, why should we forgive and why should we blame? The reason why we want to clarify the concepts is to ask about their propriety. Are there times when we should forgive? Are there times when we shouldn't? Are there people who we should blame? And are there people who we should just let go? These are very complicated and very difficult questions because they're cultural, but also because they're emotional, because they have a certain kind of weight. This idea of justice that I mentioned a moment ago, part of what justice is, is people admitting what they've done and other people acknowledging that and fixing it and moving on. Why should we forgive? Why should we blame? And Miranda has given us three basic answers, right? We blame because we want people to feel remorse, because we want people to move their moral education forward, to move the morality of the world forward, to make the world a better place, so to speak. But we forgive, A, to do that, B, to inspire them to get past their defensiveness and see themselves, Or C, we do it for ourselves to transcend, to be free of the burdens of blame. Whether we choose one or the other is a personal decision. Whether we choose to hold out until someone shows remorse, to inspire them through our actions to be better people, or just to find peace for ourselves, this has a lot to do with who we are as people, where we come from, and what we want out of life. And so, as Miranda points out, no simple definition of forgiveness and blame are going to solve our problem, because we have to ask why we're doing it and what motivates us. There will always be a balance between the individual and the community. One of the best things about this show is I get to ask the most profound questions with the most meaningful consequences. And I know that in my own life, I have anger and I have bitterness and there are things that I won't let go of. And there are other things that I just have. Now, again, I mentioned I was 50. Now at 50, maybe this conversation will help me understand why. And if I can understand why and what I gained from it and what other people gained from my blame and my forgiveness, maybe then I'll be clearer on when and why I have to do it again. And maybe that'll make my next 50 years a little easier. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you.
Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutewinestein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>